Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Investigations in Dublin into an attack on the home of a councillor supporting refugees. It was a large projectile thrown, a uh, large rock with a, a note attached basically urging me to desist from, as they called it, um, quote unquote, helping effing refugees. We also discuss the issues around the latest anti-refugee protests to flare up. We understand that they are continuing tonight. And in other news, a surprise visit to Ukraine's capital, Kyiv, by the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, who firmly backed the idea of Ukraine joining the EU. As I said in our meeting, if we can be of any help to you in your efforts to join the European Union, you only have to ask. The girls in green kick off against Australia tomorrow morning. We've been soaking up the atmosphere in Sydney. The Irish fans are got to be the 12th woman behind them girls on the field, and we're going to be louder than the Aussies this week. Join our conversation online with your comments, your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. Taoiseach has travelled to Ukraine's capital for a surprise meeting with President Zelensky. Details of the secret visit under tight security were only announced this afternoon. He's used the trip to back the idea of Ukraine joining the EU and to announce extra humanitarian funding for the country. And Ireland is also looking to the future, to reconstruction, and will offer every political, practical and financial assistance to help Ukraine achieve its objectives alongside implementation of the President's Peace Plan. Junior Minister Jennifer Carl McNeil joins me here in studio. You're very welcome to the programme, uh, Jennifer. Why now? Why did the Taoiseach choose this time to visit Ukraine? Uh, look, I think there's been a conflict there for over 500 days, and I think you've got to clearly set out uh, now, as, me as much as any other time, your clear support for the democracy, for the democratic state that is Ukraine, and the, the trouble that they have, they, have, they have suffered for so long, to clearly support, show that Ireland is supporting Ukraine as an EU member, to clearly show our humanitarian support in terms of direct aid, but also what Ireland is doing in terms of receiving refugees from Ukraine, which is a big Big topic this evening. Uh, and so I think it's really important that the Taoiseach is there. The doll has risen. He has the capacity to go now as, as much as, as uh, you know, which isn't always there. But really important to turn up today and to show a very clear commitment by Ireland to Ukraine. Well, speaking of that humanitarian uh, effort and uh, accepting so many refugees into Ireland, a local councillor in Dublin has condemned an attack on his family home, saying he was targeted for his work with refugees. It comes as protests continue and investigations into damage caused at the building in Ballybrack, South Dublin last night, following an anti-refugee demonstration. Claire Brock spoke to Councillor Hugh Lewis a little earlier. Hugh, we're here outside your dad's house. Can you describe to us what happened here on Monday night? 
Well, on Monday night I got a phone call. I wasn't in the, the home at the time. Um, my father was relaxing, watching television just before he went to bed. Uh, and he describes what sounded like a bomb uh, coming through the window, which was a large projectile thrown, uh, a large rock with a, a note attached, basically, urging me to desist from, as they called it, um, quote-unquote, helping effing refugees. Your dad's at home, alone at the time. Um, I mean, that must have been terrifying for him. He describes it as sounding like, like a bomb, um, and he called you immediately. He called me immediately. He's in quite a lot of shock. He obviously called the guards straight away. Um, you know, my, my sister um, came out to visit him that evening, stayed with him that night. He didn't go to bed till the very early hours and then didn't eat for a lot of the, the rest day, just his appetite was gone. But he's full of resolve now anyway, despite going through this, uh, this attack. He's a 78-year-old man, but he's a strong one all the same. Does that worry you? Um, I mean, how worried are you by the fact that you have been personally targeted here? Your father has been targeted and the family home um, has really been, been, been targeted in this way. Yes, I mean, well, it's very concerning. Obviously, personally, um, this is unprecedented for me and for, for most public representatives wouldn't come under this type of physical threat or physical attack. Um, but it's indicative of uh, the strategy that's been employed both in social media um, and on the streets by a very tiny element that is constantly and always trying to spread misinformation and spread fear and hatred. And people like myself, um, that you know, stands up for Irish homeless people that has a history campaign and, but does not go along with their narrative that is unfair and untrue. They like to target us rather than government. You're saying there's a specific Facebook group um, where a lot of this information or disinformation is being, mm. um, being spread. Um, what's happening on that group? Because what we've seen off the back of that is, is, is organised protests mm. taking place specifically in the village of Ballybrack. Yeah, well, unfortunately, uh, you know, various Facebook pages, including the one here, has been used to spread this information. They're sharing um, very explicit videos from far-right organisations. They're sharing out-of-context videos. Um, but most warnly, they're saying this is a threat to you. It's coming to your door, um, and the, the, you know, they're playing on people's emotions and fears, which is one of the lowest things you can do. If you're, you know, if you can reach people to communicate, the last thing you want to do is put unnecessary fear into them. If people have fears uh, and anxieties over either asylum seekers, the very best thing they can do is to engage with them, to meet them, um, and obviously, to, you know, the. the the least helpful thing to do is to target them, to harass them and to alienate them even further. With some of those people protesting, you say you understand, do you, why they're angry? Well, look, I mean, put it this way, I was a disenfranchised teenager from Ballybrack myself at one stage. So, you know, if someone had told me there's a threat to the community, we need to get organised and I didn't have a better understanding, then it's natural enough, uh, you know, young people will respond to that, which is even more of an onus on the likes of myself and other community leaders to stand up and to put the right information out there. You know, we can't point fingers and blame young people uh, for doing what they perceive as being something that protects their community. But what we need to actually do is link with these young people, uh, get the information out there and make sure they understand that there's a common struggle between asylum seekers uh, and people on the social housing list, that it's not an us versus them scenario um, and that, you know, the way we really achieve things is by uniting everyone, getting on the streets and targeting the people that can make the decisions. What um, do you make of the policing of these protests? Because 24 hours after the attack on your father's home, 
and um, we had roads closed around uh, Ballybrack. We had residents being told that they may have to move out of their homes um, if, if, if there's an escalation of violence in the area because, as I understand, there was damage done to the site. Um, do you believe the, the policing approach is right here? Well, look, people have a, are entitled to protest or entitled to block roads if they wish to do that. But what they're not entitled to do is escalate the situation where it's, it's uh, a violent one. And my understanding is from residents that I spoke to last night is that the guards themselves communicated that their, um, their homes may be at risk during the night um, to move out, for example. So when violence is threatened, I think we need to respond with, uh, with uh, a measured response. And as far as I'm concerned, if there's a threat to residents and a threat to the community, you, know, you, you don't deal with that by telling residents to move out the community and move out the apartments they're from. If this is about a threat to our community, um, from, from whatever perspective, then we need to deal with that. Um, and, and the guards need to, to, to do their job as well. Well, I'm joined in studio by Junior Minister Jennifer Carl McNeil, Sinn Féin TD, Kathleen Funchian, and News Talk journalist Barry White. I'm also joined on Skype this evening by disinformation expert Kieran O'Connor. You're all very welcome to the programme. Uh, Barry, you were out in Ballybrack this morning when things had calmed down, it was a little quieter. Did you get speaking to any local people and what were their sentiments? Did they have concerns? Yeah, I spoke to lots of local people there this morning. Everybody I spoke to condemned what happened. Um, they said they didn't want to see anybody using violence against the local councillor or attacking a building. Um, which we don't even know has been earmarked to accommodate asylum seekers at this stage. Um, locals did say they had concerns. Most of those concerns, again, are you know, something they read online. Um, and then the same as usual, oh, I have children. Will my children be safe if asylum seekers move into this building? So a lot of this is based on disinformation, stuff that people have read online. But it seems to be that someone in the village of Ballybrack has seen or heard that there was beds being moved into this building and then the rumour spread that asylum seekers are going to be accommodated here. But that's unconfirmed. I, I contacted the Department of Immigration this morning. They got back to me this evening. They say the department has not contracted uh, the property in Ballybrack. A proposal has been submitted and the department is awaiting a full suite of supporting documentation to be supplied before it can evaluate the property for use as an accommodation centre. They also say a detailed assessment must then take place before any property can be deemed suitable to accommodate international protection applicants. So we're nowhere near the stage of asylum seekers moving into this building, first of all. So I think the people protesting have jumped the gun. Um, and Roderick O'Gorman, Minister Roderick O'Gorman, I don't envy him. He's got such a hard job. He's been criticised in the past for not consulting with local people when asylum seekers are moving into an area. Here we are now, his department are saying they haven't even got to the stage to consult with locals in Ballybrack yet. And there's still protests happening. Um, so, yeah, it, we don't even know if asylum seekers are going to move in here, but the protests still continue tonight. Yeah, because you've just come from there, haven't you, Jennifer Carmen? This is in yes. your constituency. You were there last night, you saw the protests, yes. you called in on your way to the studio here yes. this evening. Describe for me what you saw. Well, it's gotten a lot worse than what you saw there in the, during uh, during the day. Today, there are people sitting outside the building. There are two public order units. There are... I found it difficult to count the number of, of uniformed guardi that were there. Um, this evening, the same last night, there was a group kicking a football across the road. And you have the sense of, you know, a, a very, very disenfranchised group of people who have come out and are taking over that 
that cross section that, that 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 Hugh Hugh has described. And you know, can I you know acknowledge the work that Hugh does locally? We were both elected to the council at the same time. He's a phenomenal councillor, a really fair guy. Uh, and what happened should happen to him should never have happened. I have had so many emails today from people in Ballybrack condemning this, just as Barry's experience has been. This is not representative of the people in Ballybrack. This is not representative of the community in Dunleary. We have had 160 international protection applicants move into Ablana Avenue in Dunleary. It has happened with good consultation from the department. We got good information about not just the building, but the support structures that were going to be there. On Monday night, I was in the Dunleary Refugee Project. I met three of the men who were there. They were talking to me that they'd, you know, that they had put in an application for the further training college. They have now been accepted into that. These are people who are trying to do everything they can to integrate into the community in a really constructive way. And the consultation that we had around Blana Avenue was very constructive. It enabled me as a public representative to answer any questions that people had. In relation to Ballybrack, this is a building that it used to be a doctor's surgery. It's being refurbished by the Department of Housing. It may be that it's passed to the Department of Equality. I mean, when you look at the number of people that are coming into Ireland, we've had 100,000 people, 84,000 of which are Ukrainians. We are under desperate pressure for space. Do you think there is there's no justification for violence. And there is no justification, but do you think there is a likelihood that this particular building will be used? I think it's, it's a possibility, but as Barry has said, it hasn't gone through the process yet. We are nowhere near providing consultation or being able to provide information. However, the experience in Dunleary is when that is happening, we have gotten good information. We have been able to answer people's questions. We have been able to make sure that the supports are there. Okay. And we haven't had any difficulties with are that. Are there local people in attendance this yes. evening in Ballybrack? Yes. Yes, there are. So this isn't just, you know, because you hear this time and time again, that it is the same far-right agitators attending these protests. It is actually local people with I'm sure it's they would not, say genuine It is not concerns. uniquely local people. There are other people there who have a history or who, who have shown on social media a history of being involved in protests around this, but there are also, a, a, you know, a, there are some local people there from Ballybrack, yeah. Okay, why do you think they're in attendance, Jennifer? I can't answer that. I can't, I can't answer why, why, I mean, I have no, like, why have people coming to me asking me questions about a whole range of different things, but to create a sort of a, a flash mob, as it were, um, I... I'm concerned that it has drifted beyond the individual issue to something that has become more heated generally. And I'm driving through the village tonight and I'm looking at the kind of engagement. It's actually very peaceful tonight. It's actually very calm. You know, there's a very strong Garda presence, but what I see is the Garda engaging with people, chatting to people. It feels different to last night. But the Garda still have to be there. Well, the reality is they do. And when you think like there was two, there was Garda presence there all night last night. It was there this morning. People, as Hugh says, people are entitled to protest, you know, within certain parameters. They're not entitled to become violent. But I think there is an ongoing threat to the building and that's why there's such a significant Garda presence. But that has drawn the Garda from the rest of my constituency to just that area. So the rest of my community are not being served in the way that they should because of the, because of the concentration of this violence. But I can a... answer anyone's questions. So can Hugh. We can go down and talk to people at any stage and answer any questions that they have. No difficulty. Why do you think, Kathleen, or what do you put the emergence of these protests down to? Well, first of all, I just want to add my voice to condemning that attack. It was absolutely horrific, and particularly 
um, given the, the age of, of Councillor Lewis's dad as well. You can imagine how scary that whole situation was. Um, so just to say that, I think he hit the nail on the head himself in, in the, the video earlier around the amount of misinformation. And I see that all the time on social media. Somebody puts something up, it gets shared and shared and shared, and then all of a sudden it becomes fact when it's not. And then you're trying to actually explain to people that that is actually not the correct information. Now, I find you will have some people that will contact you, they'll ask you questions, you can engage, you can, you know, trash things out and they, you realise the amount of misinformation. But there's a huge amount of people that just kind of share things over and over again and that's where they're getting their news. I do think there needs so to be some level... Do you think there's there with legitimate concerns? Do you understand where some people might be coming from? I think they're if they're if they're angry about maybe their situation, if there's somebody that's trying to access housing, um, or they're trying to access whatever the situation is in terms of cost of living and everything, they're totally directing their anger at the wrong place, and they they should not be involved in any way, shape, or form in that activity. Um, you know, they should come speak to their their local public reps. Um, but I do think I do think that social media companies we, we have to kind of hold them a little bit more to account as well because that is where so much of this misinformation starts and there is loads of examples around the country where people have moved in it's been really great community communities have been so welcoming they've been so accommodating and it's worked really well where there has been I don't even like to call a consultation but where there's been sort of communities talking to the, the relevant authorities and it, like if we could have that replicated the problem is sometimes the misinformation gets out there first and then people are kind of frenzied up into this and I would imagine if you ask a lot of people they don't even really know they've kind of gotten caught up in this and then when you actually sit down one-on-one -on -one with people or in small groups and talk to them it, you know it, it diffuses the situation and they understand but I would agree as well with what uh, Councillor Lewis said in relation to you know people need to unite people who are coming to the country are coming under desperate circumstances they are in, in difficult times we need to be supporting them as well you know we need to okay. be more united on that I would say. I want to go to uh, Kieran O'Connor our disinformation um, expert is this all being driven by social media do you believe is that the breeding ground for these type of protests? <laughs> Well, false and misleading claims have been around since as long as we've been around. But yes, what has changed in the last five or ten years is this um, is this online ecosystem, is this amplification machine that allows false or misleading claims that are used to target, smear and, and spread slurs against people based on perhaps their background or their religion to spread like wildfire. And if you think about how fast it takes to simply share or post something that is false or misleading, versus the, the length of time it takes to produce a news story debunking a false claim or, or get comment from the Guardian or get comment from local representatives. Uh, the online platforms in which people share and communicate and, and get access information are built and created in a way for false and misleading claims like this to spread like wildfire. But also in that mix are people who have a clear campaign to try and denigrate or dehumanize uh, asylum seekers for their own uh, racist and xenophobic campaigns as well. And um, Councillor Lewis spoke about the language, the language of fear and the language of threat. And I know you think a lot of the language online is particularly charged. Yeah, it's, it's about this othering mindset. It's about creating an us versus them sort of narrative. So so often amongst the kind of uh, leading figures who are who are present in Ballybrack, but also present in Finglas or East Wall or Mullingar or other locations, they're traveling around the country. 
the kinds of terms they use to describe asylum seekers are invaders. They're here to replace us. The, the arrival of asylum seekers is akin to a new plantation. You know, very charged, emotive terms that will uh, incite perhaps hate, will, will incite hatred and could potentially also incite violence. And into this kind of febrile information environment, there are people who are creating, posting, promoting false and harmful claims, and they're having an effect, they're having an impact on disenfranchised local communities who do perhaps have genuine concerns, but it is also inciting people towards violence, and that's where uh, the, the line must be drawn. It's too far. Um, talking about social media companies and the role they have here, because as you said, that's where a lot of this misinformation begins, what more could the government ask or require these social media companies to do to, to limit, I suppose, the potential for this type of information online? Or given the fact that these are global companies, are the government's hands kind of tied here? Well, you need joined up thinking and you need to be talking to multiple social media platforms, not just one, because a, a whack-a-mole approach on, on one piece of content is it's simply ineffective. You're talking about a whole ecosystem in which false and misleading claims spread across multiple platforms platforms with people with multiple accounts on each four governments I, I think that you need to be recommending greater transparency from from platforms first of all to understand how this kind of content is spreading but also uh, seeking for seeking greater clarity and accountability from platforms in removing the potential for algorithmic amplification and the spreading of this kind of sensational highly emotive content that is having having a clear impact on people Okay, let me just go back to my panel here because there was one other thing um, that I wanted to pick up on from um, Claire's conversation with the councillor um, and that was about the Gardaí and how the Gardaí have, I suppose, policed these protests and I suppose advice that had come from them, you know, if you feel you're under threat, move out. And he was quite critical of that response. How did local people take that advice on board? The locals today didn't really have much to say again. There was a lot of disinformation. They didn't really have much to say about the Guardi. The Guardi maintained a presence there to make sure the building was safe today. Um, but I've seen the Guardi interacting with local people. They were trying to just keep the situation calm for as much. That's, that's what I could see. But on the disinformation thing, like I, I had a guy today um, in the village who said to me, you know, why are you here reporting on this? There was a woman in Bray attacked by asylum seekers. Why are you not reporting on that? And I was just like, I'm not reporting on that because it didn't happen. You know, they're reading this stuff online and they're spreading it. And it's just but they believe that false, the mainstream media aren't reporting they, on it because there's an agenda there. Yeah, and you get that as well when you're out reporting on these things. Um, and maybe, look, maybe the people in Ballybrack might have a point because there are examples where the government have moved asylum seekers into areas in the past with zero consultation. I know now Minister O'Gorman says there are trying to, they're trying to have more consultation now um, with local reps and local people, but... Maybe people are looking at what happened in other areas and they're thinking, oh, this is this is happening again. Okay, just very quickly, Jennifer, in relation to that issue of how the Gardaí um, police these type of protests, do you think they have done that appropriately? Because they have come in for some criticism in the past for perhaps being too tolerant of these protesters. What I've seen in Ballybrack, what I've seen, and I don't have all of the information about what's happened all day, every day, but what I've seen has been appropriate and proportionate. I'm sorry to see that sort of the scale of the presence of the Guardian in Ballybrack. It's not 
in any way typical of the village, but I think the Guardi have tried to maintain a presence without escalating anything to try to take the heat out as much as possible. That's what I've seen. But is and that that's working when you get response. messages like move out if you feel there's a threat? Is that's, that the right message? You know, I haven't heard that back from anybody in Ballybrack today and I've spoken to a number of different residents there and really what they're looking for is to condemn it and they're looking for more information at the relevant time. But I think, you know, you've listened to Kathleen, myself, Councillor Lewis, all coming from very different parties, all saying that there's a massive problem with misinformation. Yeah. Like we are finding it, we might say quite different things in terms of policy, but what we're saying is, is true, it's factual, it's honest. But there's a question about the bona fides, the good. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. ...faith or bad faith of what I say or what Kathleen says or what Councillor Hugh Lewis says that just isn't breaking through, or what Barry says or what you say, that isn't breaking through this narrative on social media that we're all not to be trusted, that we're all incorrect. That simply isn't the case, you know what I mean? We're providing information as we have it. And, and that is, you know, that discourse is, until we get to change that, this is going to get worse, not better for the old democracy, for, for, for our democratic project. All right, look, we're going to have to leave that conversation there for now. My thanks to Kieran O'Connor and to Barry White for his contribution. Up next, foster parent, academic and author Katrina O'Sullivan joins us to discuss the crisis that's facing Tusla. You're very welcome back. Child and family agency Tusla has today revealed that they received almost 10,000 more referrals in 2022 than in the previous year. This comes in the week that a former district court judge expressed his frustrations at the failings of the Irish care system and detailed how it could open the state to future legal claims. Well, Jennifer Carroll McNeil, Kathleen Funchian have stayed with me and we're also joined by academic, author and former foster parent, Katrina O'Sullivan. You are very welcome to the programme. So we had this week, Katrina, this blistering letter from mm. Judge Sims. We've had the Tusla report today talking about an agency under pressure. We've had the Child Law Project identifying you know, children who are in unregulated and unsuitable care settings for them, all highlighting, I think, a, a crisis within the sector. That is the word that Tusla used. But do you feel that this issue far precedes these current reports? Yeah, the frustration from myself and other people I know who are fostering or have been in, um, uh, in touch with Tusla is 
It's so frustrating that a judge's letter has re reached the media. We've been complaining, people like me have been complaining for years about the under-resourcing, the bad service that is Tusla. And yet now, because a judge is talking about it, all of a sudden it makes the media and people people care about it. That's really, really frustrating, especially for someone who's, I suppose, been through the care system myself and actually then become a foster carer and had the experience of, of making complaints to Tusla, having them complaints supposedly heard and having no response to them. Like I have a letter on my kitchen boards, which I received over two years ago, saying my complaint was going to be followed up within a month. I still haven't had a response. And this is a consistent experience. All you have to do is look on social media in the response to the report, the amount of people who've experienced you know, unheard complaints, foster parents who've left, who don't want to stay engaged because the system is, is completely broken. You call it under-resourced and you said there's a bad service. How does that manifest itself? In it's more than just not having your complaints answered, I would imagine. Well, I, I think underinvestment is the key issue. I mean, we can talk about, you know, foster carers leaving, um, the, not enough trainee social workers, but the reality is foster social workers particularly are, are under underfunded and then there's a high pressure system. So one of the key issues is I fostered, within three years of that child being in foster care, he had had 10 different social workers. All, uh, two of them ha didn't have English. And so that child had to retell his story at 10 times and try and connect again. So 10 times, so traumatizing. Like it would have probably been better for him to have stayed in a family home, received some, su some support there than actually have to go in a, into a system where he had to reconnect with people. We know that attachment is so fundamental to development. Mm -hmm. And this lad, he really, and this is a consistent issue. And this is because, and social workers are fantastic. We've, I've worked with the best social workers. They have genuine commitments to making a change. But when they're given heavy caseloads, they're not given time to care and they can see the negative impact that the system is having, they don't want to stay in the job. The Taoiseach said yesterday that this was deeply concerning to hear that Tusla was in crisis, but he said that this problem has been exacerbated by a range of factors, including migration and the number of unaccompanied children coming into the country. Would you agree that these factors are not helping the situation? <laughs> the frustration I felt when I heard the Taoiseach speaking, the, the defensiveness, like at least Kate Duggan acknowledged the crisis crisis of the system. That's a new she, head of Tusla. The new head of Tusla. She came out and said, whereas for me, the tee shot was just defensive. And the reality is there was, there has been an increase, 13% increase of, of reports. However, there was in that same year, there was only 5% increase in investments. So while we know there was a 13% increase in reports because of Ukrainians coming into the country and, and changes, there was, a, there was still underinvestment. So only 5%, 41 million was invested in that, in that time frame. And the reality is the number of children in care hasn't changed. And he said that it's the number of children in care has, has increased and it hasn't. Over the last 10 years, it's remained around 6,000 children. Yeah, I think the number of referrals has increased, yeah. but the number of children in care hasn't. Yeah. I think it might actually have it's decreased. Actually um, yeah. If a child does not have an assigned social worker. And I mean somebody that not 10 social workers in five years or five and 10 years, whatever that figure was. If they are put into a special emergency arrangement, as they call them, which might be a hotel or a holiday home or a B&B, what is the impact of that, Katrina? What is it that they are missing out on? 
The consistency of care, having an adult that you can relate to and talk to. Imagine being 12 years of age and being pulled from your family. I grew up in a dysfunctional home. My parents were addicts. I understand that. But I loved my family. And like children now who are moved from their own families, they love their families. And to be taken and placed in a hotel on your own for weeks on end with an absolute stranger is abysmal it is not acceptable and to defend that in any way and not come forward and say we need to change this now is unacceptable and for me the harm is in the children them 6,000 children even if it's five percent of them or three percent there's a massive that's a massive number of kids who are going to grow up with these feeling neglected for myself I grew up having been let down by my family but them having been let down by the state and what that means is you grow up with no trust you don't know where to go and you don't believe anybody. And this is so awful, Jennifer Carroll McNeil, because we talk about vulnerable people in society. But I don't think there's anybody there's no more, vulnerable more vulnerable than a child no. that is taken out of their family home no. or their parents are not able to no. look after them for whatever reason. I mean, Roger McGorman said last year that the extra budget that he got for his department, which Tusa comes on, was transformative, is what he said. And it was transformative, I think, for areas like childcare, but it clearly was not transformative. For Tusla. Well, on last year's budget, there is another, a huge increase, but like, just put that aside for a second. Just put that aside for a second. There is nobody more vulnerable than a child in special care in this state, where the state intervenes and not just takes them away from their family, but doesn't put them in a foster care, but the child is so vulnerable that they have to go into a special care place, which is So we know that. And, yes, and what Katrina but, is saying yeah, is, I, I, this not, is an issue for oh, the I'm government. I'm not disagreeing. I am not disagreeing. I was part of the government in 2011 that established the Department of Children to try to take the, what the, Tusla was created to try and get it out of HSE because the service was so bad at that stage and it is we did the children's referendum to try to make sure the children would have a voice in care proceedings the guard it strengthened the guardian ad litem system and it hasn't happened with the strength that I had hoped you know it is so devastating to hear cases like when I heard some of the, the cases in the child law project I was thinking back to some of the cases like Tracy Fay I was thinking back to the horror that was Lefroy House like I have I have gone through all of this for the last 13 14 years and it is devastating to see some of the descriptions on the but other we, hand yes because on we, the we, other we hand people don't but need to on hear the, the government agreeing that it is a crisis. Well, would you want me to disagree and say that it isn't? It is a crisis and I'm acknowledging that and I understand it. What I also see is that of the six, between five and a half and 6,000 over the last three years, children in care, nearly 90% of those are with foster carers. And that is, as Katrina says, the most stable relationship that you can create and foster carers need to be supported better in that but you cannot that can't work unless you have the longevity of a social worker that you have somebody with whom you have a relationship so where do you, you can bring Katrina, I, I, I do want to just repeat what Katrina said which is identifying all the problems I'm looking for solutions is the problem resources is the problem budget here do you think for Tusla I think the problem is partially budget but I think like the, the budgetary increases have tried to keep pace with the influx in population both very traumatized children coming in from Ukraine and had quite a number of separated children that have come in through the international protection system. But even if you take that aside, there is still so much more investment to be put into Tusla. There is still so much more that linkages, pa referral pathways. Like for example, in the Gardaí, when you have in the juvenile liaison, liaison, excuse me, liaison officer system, somebody is often referred to Tusla for a welfare follow-up. But I am never clear, I used to be in that office with, with, on youth justice, never clear that that happens. But these are the sorts of interventions that can make huge difference in a child's life, whether it's in the care system, whether okay, it's in the criminal Jennifer, justice system. Respect, but they absolutely have to happen. This is, is a commentary on what's wrong. You're in government. Fine has been in government for 12 years. And we have Tusla today, 
which came under Frances Fitzgerald, didn't it? And you were special advisor yep. to and her. And we established it. And we yep. established it. Yep. They are now saying that they are in crisis. And Roderick O'Gorman, as minister, has been there since 20... And we had Catherine, Catherine Zipolin before that. But you're right. This is, this is about making sure that the investment meets the population growth, but much more importantly, that you have the longevity of social workers and that social workers are supported and foster carers are supported. How I'm are sorry, but that? I'm not going to disagree with anybody on this. I no, firmly I, I believe in this, people, in every way. And everybody does. Kathleen, what, yeah, do, I, I what really do you want think? To come in, I really want to come in on this. The issues and the solutions here that the government are not addressing. Yeah, first of all, it's not just about Tusla. We have to look at this whole situation in the round. So we have to look at, go right back to the very basics, family support, uh, youth work, projects like the school completion project that help children who are potentially falling outside of the, the school system. And I know it's not all about school, but there is lots of services like that that were cut back in the recession years of 2008 that have never really seen their budgets reinstated. Like the, the youth gets uh, 2% of the whole department's budget. It's not enough. And that's at a critical stage from the age of 12 into teenage years where we do need to be investing in young people. So yes, there's a, there's a, there's a very serious role for Tusla and we definitely need far more social workers. For example, only half of the required social workers are being trained every year. So that's a problem that we're, we're going to see into the future if we don't address that. We also need to ensure that social workers are given the supports they need so that, so that they're not overburdened with loads of cases. But I do think as well, if we don't look at the other services like to try and, and prevent in some cases, you're not going to prevent every case, but in some cases you can prevent children possibly coming into care if, if families are given the correct supports and the correct services. And that goes down to mental health services, it goes down to addiction services, uh, services for youth. Uh, and I think in fairness, Judge Sims did recognise that in Exactly, his but that's why it's important that, it that we don't, just... uh, it's not just focus on, social work is a really key part of it. But I would say as well, like what Katrina said, those that are in the foster care uh, system and, and the the kinship care, like kinship carers and foster carers have been saying this for years. Yeah, yeah. You know, they have been saying that they need supports and, and that a lot of the children that they are that they have coming into their care, you know, maybe need speech and language, uh, occupational therapy, they can't get access to those services. And, and, and we, we have, have seen that's within Tusla, sorry, yeah. um, across your Katrina, but we have seen within Tusla, and I accept it's not just about them, but they are the, the, the first line, I suppose, for yeah. these children. Major staff retention issues, huge absenteeism rates, way yeah. above what it is um, in the rest of the HSE, and the number of foster carers actually leaving the system. But this is because, because the, the services are not yeah. in place. So the services are not... Children who go into care... I was a child who had been through trauma. We require extra care. CAMS, counselling when it's needed, extra support for foster carers. When them service, And them services are not available for families, and they're not available quickly. Are, are children in care... Or, Children, I suppose, at Tusla are, are, you know, over. Are they being prioritised for those services? I well, I think they no, do. I, don't, I, I, I don't think, think they're so. prioritised, but I don't think the services. So I do know, like from my own experiences, that say the social worker will have a connection with um, CAMS or some of the services that are available, but there's massive waiting lists. So like foster carers, the reason they leave, the reason I am not fostering anymore is because when the child needs help, which they do, for, except more than what you can give, there is no support to get that help. So you, in your home, you have a child that really requires emotional support, financial support. So in our case, if a child, when a child ages out of, of foster care and they're 18, they, if they don't stay in education or yeah, they don't stay in employment, support. in training, they lose their allowance. Yeah. So in my case, my, the 18-year-old young man who was really thriving, 
he, he couldn't stay in education because he was really traumatised and had a really hard time. And then all of his supports were cut when he turned 18. So literally, kids who are in foster care don't stay in education, they end up homeless. They end up committing suicide, they end up with significant mental health difficulties. And this crisis has been going on for over 10 years. Yeah. It is not a new issue. The judge is not highlighting something new. And it's not okay that we do not say this is a problem and we're going to solve it and we're going to yeah, solve it yeah. now. All right, Jennifer, this is a problem that's on your government, your party's watch, being the fact that you've been in government for the last 12 years. I acknowledge the difficulty in Tuslo. I'm not going to say anything different. I'm, I mean, I, I appreciate those population pressures, but these are the same issues that we were dealing with, uh, you know, for, for a very long period. And, and the, the, the change in terms of Tuslo and creating the new agency, putting in the different supports. I appreciate that there's been an da economic downturn, building back up supports, but it's still not getting the delivery for children in the care system, the kind of consistency and support that so, that some of the... What like, needs not to be done to, say, to change that? That's not to say that all of the children, many of them, many of them are, but, but, but I really believe that, I mean, Tusla have a very significant now uh, programme to try to recruit more staff. They've clearly put in a national lead in relation to foster care, which is the most important part of the childcare system in terms of volume, but in terms of stable relationships where possible. Not every child is suitable for that either. Um, What's going to bring them out of crisis? Look, I think what's going to bring them out of crisis is the development of all of the support services, the consistency of the referral pathways, and being able to make sure that every case is has the capacity to follow it up, but that it is followed up, assiduously followed up, uh, and, and that is and, and that and that linked with the guardian, linked with the other services and we need to see where it comes. I think it needs to be interdepartmental children, um, you know, health and ju justice and education. They all need to come around the table because those that are working in the sector, the youth workers, the foster carers, the social workers, they often have the solutions. In fact, oh, they do have the solutions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Look, we're going to have to leave that conversation there for now. My thanks to Katrina for joining us and for bringing us your uh, insights. Lots more on the way, including the build-up to the big World Cup game in the morning. Do you stay with us? Less than 24 hours to go before the Republic of Ireland lines out against Australia in the opening match of the Women's World Cup in Sydney. There's huge excitement amongst supporters who've travelled down under and Irish people who live there. Paul Quinn is in Sydney for us. Well, look, the atmosphere here in Sydney has been pretty amazing since we landed down under. Over the last couple of days, thousands of Irish fans have been flying in ahead of the first game tomorrow. An awful lot of families coming in, uh, parents of particularly young girls who feel it's really important to be here for this historic event. Of course, this is the first time uh, that an Irish women's team has been in a World Cup. Now, more than 82,000 fans uh, will be in the stadium tomorrow night for uh, that opening game to see the girls in green taking on the Matildas. And the initial capacity for this match was some 40,000 people, but that was doubled to 82,000. You can hear a couple of people saying, come on, Ireland, here behind me. You can't walk around uh, iconic venues like the Opera House in the last couple of days and not see Irish people. So it's really amazing to see that. As I said, a lot of families uh, coming uh, down under as well, a, a, a lot of young kids, and this really is there 
Italia 90. That's what it's all about for them. And, you know, these players are their idols. They look up to these players. Growing up for a lot of people, it was all about the men. But that's certainly changed. And, you know, as I say, over the last couple of days, we've been meeting a lot of fans. We were in Coogee uh, Beach earlier this morning for a sunrise where a couple of hundred uh, Irish people, mainly living uh, here uh, down under, came out to show their support for the girls in green. And we also then headed out to the airport where uh, the team arrived in from their base in Brisbane ahead of that big match tomorrow. There were emotional scenes as the Irish team arrived at Sydney Airport today on the eve of their historic match against Australia. Vera's Green Army, fans who've travelled from all over Ireland greeted the players, their heroes, their inspiration. I am their lucky charm so I kind of have to come. I'm absolutely buzzing. I'm so excited to be here. I've been like a child coming up to Christmas for the last three weeks. I, I think we're going to outdo the Aussies inside there. You won't hear any support from Australia. I think we're just going to roar them out of it. Like. I hope Barrett scores a couple of goals now for us. On Barrett. <laughs> Enjoy Australia. Captain Katie McCabe's family, they're supporting her. See from the time she was a kid to where she is now and what she is now and who she is now. She's, um, she's a leader. An emotional reunion too for Amber Barrett and her dad. Uh, yeah, it's, it's always emotional when Amber's involved, like, you know, when she comes on, when she plays, when she particularly if she scores, like, it's, it's very emotional. Like. But that, that's the same for every parent. At a pre-match press conference, both Vera and Katie acknowledging what the support means. It's so heartwarming every time again, the way the Irish are reacting on us. It's not just being there, it's the way that they are there. See it in person when we arrived um, was a really special feeling and for us, um, yeah, it's, it's amazing and it was nice to kind of have that moment with our fans. Earlier members of the Irish community in Sydney came out to show their support for the girls in green as the sun came up over Coogee Bay. There's so many people that have flown over, there's people that have been here for years and it's just great to see so many faces come together and support the girls. Had to come out and support the girls in green. Um, I think it's so important for young Irish girls to see. The Irish fans are got to be the 12th woman behind them girls on the field and we're going to be louder than the Aussies this week. Among them, Katie Milady from Navin who wrote a song, Tala, to Australia for the girls in green. We are the fighting Irish, we will never be put down. We're a part of Vera's army and we're women loud and proud. Paul Quinn reporting for us there from Sydney. Jennifer Carl McNeil and Kathleen Funchen are still here with me. Jennifer, will you watch the game tomorrow? All excited. I'm going to Black Rock to watch it with Granada Football Club, which is actually Ireland's biggest club for women, <laughs> for the girls' club. It's Ireland's biggest club. They have over 300 girls playing in Granada and Black Rock, and I'm going to watch it with them tomorrow, and I can't wait. I have to say, we've seen you know certain localities where the girls are from, you know, the tricolours out, loads of support. But is there a different buzz than there would be if the men were playing. I don't know and I don't care because they're playing tomorrow. And, you know, when you think about what the girls have been through since 2017, you know, this is a real measure of equality in sport. You know, they have really stood their ground and looked for, you know, the equivalents in match fees, looked for being treated in an equivalent way. And now so they're in the World Cup and it's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, do they deserve then more support? I mean, I was conscious driving in here this evening. Where was the bunting? Where was the tricolours? If the men were in the World Cup tomorrow, you would see, you would see that out. Well, why don't you come to Black Rock with me tomorrow and see what the level of support is there from it's in Black Rock Rugby Club, Granada Football Club are coming there and it's going to be absolutely brilliant. So come along with me and we'll see what level of support there is in Black Rock. That's a date, I'll hold you yeah. to that. Mm -hmm. um, it is, look, it's a huge, huge achievement for this team. You can see the excitement there. They talk about how heartwarming it is to see the support from the Irish fans that have travelled. 
It's also been hugely influential, we hope, for young women in yeah. sport. How do we build on that momentum? Well, first of all, just to wish the girls the very best of luck. I think it's fantastic. I think it's long overdue, the recognition and the support they're getting. It's great to see that so many people travelled as well. And obviously, there's a large Irish community there too. So that's fantastic for them. But it was hard fought, in fairness. And I really hope that we don't just see this in... in, in um, that we see it across all women's sports, that this could be kind of the catalyst for change now and that they finally get the support and the funding, crucially, that is needed because we know that often you know female sports are underfunded. So it's really, really important that we do build on this. But I do We've think seen it's... that campaign from the Ladies Gaelic Football Club for the last... That's ex yeah, that's, that's exactly what, what I was thinking of. And I, and I do think, though, that it's fantastic for, for younger uh, girls and women to see this. And it's good to have, uh, you know, really strong, positive role models in female sport because, you know, it's definitely not easy being a young teenager or a young girl now in the, in the world we're growing up in. So this is really positive, really good role models. And I think everybody will be, be tuned in and cheering them on. But we do need to keep this uh, campaign of uh, you know, change going for, for female sports, definitely. Yeah, well, absolutely. Our huge support to the uh, girls in green tomorrow. Kai Gig from us all here on The Tonight Show. Kickoff is at 11am. Good luck to them. That's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. And you can also now find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, VMTV. But from all the late team here and from my guests, good night.